Hello all, my name is Sheila Ramjug and I am part of the ERS Monograph Editorial Board as I am their former Early Career Member Representative. As many of you know, I'm currently a consultant pulmonologist working in the Manchester region of the UK. Now today we are recording a special podcast as myself, along with Professor Aurelie Fab and Professor John Hurst are guest editors on the quite novel edition of the monograph, simply entitled COVID-19. Now, both my guest editors need very little introduction though. So Aurelie is a consultant histopathologist at St. Vincent's University in the beautiful city of Dublin. Aurelie has a specialist interest in thoracic pathology, and I must say that means hearts and lungs, but her particular specialist interest is that of mine, which is interstitial lung disease. And she's very active within the ERS as a member of many task force, including the genetics of IOD. I suspect though, currently, she's pretty occupied with COVID-19 related research. John is a professor of respiratory medicine at UCL, but we won't hold that against him. (laughs) And as many of you know, he has a specialist interest in COPD. He's the senior clinical lead for the Royal College of Physicians, National Asthma and COPD Audit Programme. And importantly, he's the chief editor of the ERS monograph. We are fortunate to be joined by both Aurelie and John. Hi, Sheila. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. So I was just really curious to ask both of you, what were you doing at the start of the pandemic when it all first kicked off? Tell me, Aaron. Thank you, Sheila. Interestingly, I was actually asked at the end of January 2020 to join one of the expert advisory group made of uh, clinicians to advise the Irish government on COVID-19. So at the start, it was mainly uh, reading the literature that was coming mainly from China and trying to decide actions to be taken or not to be taken and really how to navigate through all this new data. Because at the time, we didn't have any cases in Ireland. They only started coming when Irish people came back from skiing holidays from Italy and Austria. And that's where we started getting the few cases. And my role in that group was there as a pulmonary pathologist. And I ended up actually writing the guidelines for the the coroners and the funeral directors had to handle COVID autopsies, COVID positive bodies and so on. So that was actually, uh, so I was thrown into the deep end very early on, but which allowed me to really gain uh, knowledge very quickly as well on the subject. And I'm just trying to think what I was doing. And I'm really glad that I really spoke first, Sheila, because it's only two years ago, but it seems like a lifetime ago uh, to think about what you might call the before times. So I'm an academic clinician. So I was doing my usual clinical work that revolves around COPD and looking after patients with primary immunodeficiency. And I was running my research group, which is interested in COPD and people with primary immunodeficiency. Uh, And suddenly I find myself involved in research and clinical care and, for reasons we might talk about, guest editing a book in a disease I hadn't even heard about two and a half years ago. So this has been (laughs) this has been quite a journey, I think. I think it's been a massive roller coaster, hasn't it, for us all? And I wasn't doing anything as glamorous. I had actually CCT'd at that point. So I was thinking of taking four weeks off before starting my consultant position. And I was very fortunate to be asked actually by the hospital I was working in, the ICU, to come and work there because it's an infectious diseases hospital. So I was working 
in the intensive care unit with the COVID-19 patients, as I felt that if I was called into work, it would probably be one of the safest places to be clinically <laughs> with full PPE. So, yeah, I think we were all in very different places and it does feel a lifetime ago. But you kind of touched on it already, John, but what prompted this edition of the monograph in an area that you didn't really know much about? So why is it so important to you? Well, uh, this is a this is a podcast, isn't it? So people can't see how silver my hair has come uh, over the past two years. But a lot of those silver hairs relate <laughs> relate to this edition of the monograph because I don't know whose idea it was. But if it if we can work out together whose idea it was amongst the three of us, I think I think we should have a word with that person because the editors, but actually more importantly, the individual chapter authors and our reviewers have had an incredible challenge of trying to write what the monograph does, state-of-the-art reviews, collection of -of state-of-the-art reviews, in a landscape which was constantly changing. I've I've never experienced that before. I guess nobody has. Why did we do it? I, I guess the honest answer is that the monograph is there to serve the members of the ERS and the wider scientific community. And whilst there was a lot of primary research coming out in the other family of ERS publications, in the journal, in the review, Breathe, there wasn't that collection of state-of-the-art reviews, which is what the monograph excels at. And And we thought the community would welcome that. And so we decided to do it, didn't we? Isn't that what happened? Yeah, and I think as well, I think it was really important to come up with some sort of a readable, comprehensive collection of reviews that really make head to toe of what was going on out there. There was so many publications, so much data being generated that I think the monograph successfully provided a, a very comprehensive review of all the different areas that COVID involved. I think it did mean that we had to take a slightly different approach, didn't we? So, so normally the chapters of the monograph come in when they're ready, and then when everything's ready, we, we publish. But of course, that meant that the chapters which had been submitted earlier were, were at risk of being out of date. So the approach that we took, and hugely grateful to the ERS Publications Office, and, and, and particularly Rachel Gossard as, as managing editor for all they've done with this, because they really did drive it behind the scenes as they always do, but we got all the chapters in and then out for open peer review. And once that peer review process had been completed, we got them all updated at once. So, so hopefully they were all updated at the, at the same time, basically, when the final collection was published. It was an interesting thing to be involved with. That is what made it so novel, wasn't it? The fact that it was almost a live living book as such. And I, I would hope that the ERS community appreciated that, actually, to, to be able to give their input and advice. And I think they were great at suggesting reviewers as well, which was super helpful. And with all the different chapters that we have, I, I suspect we'll all have our, our secret favourites. But orally, I was I was really curious if you could tell us a bit, particularly with all your reading and how you first started in the pandemic, a little bit about the history of the virus itself. Yeah, so I think it all started in uh, in China on this um, market, and there was a lot of epidemiological studies showing that most of the patients were coming from around that Wuhan market, with all this, you know, putative uh, etiology, you know, 
some sort of an animal to human spread and so on. So I think that was really the start. And then we got the data of how sick the patients were getting and how fulminant the disease would be in some. And I think there's a big difference to what we saw back then to what we're seeing now in terms of disease severity and patients' outcomes. So I think that was a bit of a shock to the whole world, I think, to see people and, and doctors dying. I think that was as well, that was really surprising to see, you know, doctors who had been looking after patients dying of the disease with their patients, you know, and I remember this uh, Chinese ophthalmologist who, you know, died and I was, and then in Italy, there was a lot of ENT surgeons who passed away as well. So I think that was really hard, I think, for the medical community. So really, this really severe disease and really not knowing how to handle it. And then looking at the Chinese, you know, building those hospitals within two weeks and, and, and us in the Western world trying to cope with patients flooding ENEs and ICUs and wards and having to reorganize hospitals overnight. So I think to me, that was really the immense challenge to deal with those patients. And you mentioned the variety of the, the severity that patients were presenting. And from a pathological process, are there different things to be found at autopsy in the varying patients? So when we got the first microscopic slides from China again, and they had some sort of a image repository that we could access, it really looked like, you know, what you would see in an ARDS in adult respiratory distance syndrome with this really ill-looking, toxic lung injury. And really that was the, the main finding. And then over the last few months following on to those publications, people were describing more multi-organ disease, systemic disease. And I think the message that we got from all those publications was that the lung was the first hit organ with mode of entry. And I think what was then happening in the other organs was more an immune response that was driving, you know, shock in the kidney, shock in the bowel, this vascular process as well, the macrotrombi, which I think was a bit different from all the other viral illnesses that we had seen before. So I think those autopsies were very helpful to understand the disease and I think guided the way we managed acutely ill patients and defined, I think, the, the different categories of severities. So I think it's in a world where autopsies are not really regarded as helpful and useful and, and being done, suddenly all the data and all the management that we're now using for patients is actually based on all those autopsy findings. So I think it really changed the way clinicians and lay people viewed the autopsy and the importance of it. And John, what were your findings or your thoughts with regards to this as well? So I think the question you asked orally was about favourite chapters, and I, it's difficult to single out one because because there's so much in there. But the one that I was really excited to commission and to read and really enjoyed reading is actually the, the chapter about research. Because to be a clinical researcher in the midst of what is primarily a respiratory pandemic is quite something. And when I reflect on the highs and lows, because they were both of research during the pandemic, there are some standout successes. And you look at platform trials like recovery, for example, which definitively showed us the benefit of dexamethasone. To many people's surprise, we should remember at the time, and definitively showed us the absence of benefit from some of the things that people were sort of thinking, well, let's have a go with this. Do you remember the hydroxychloroquine and the azithromycin? And there were some international states people who were quite heavy on some of those. So to, to have robust evidence was really quite something. And I, I think, you know, huge shout out 
to the people who were involved in those studies. But but publishing changed as well, right? So so we had the results of the steroid analysis in recovery published very rapidly in the New England Journal. But actually, those results were available prior to that as a preprint. And the fact that those results were available as a preprint saved thousands of lives because those results were out there more quickly than they would have been in as well. So, so it's not just been a revolution, I think, in the way that we've conducted research and the way that we've delivered research, but also a revolution in medical publishing. And like the pros and cons of the research that's been going on, there's definitely some pros and cons of preprints too, but they're here to stay and the world is not going back to how it was before. And uh, that's an exciting thing to see. So that was something that I was particularly interested in. What about you, Sheila? What did you enjoy about the monograph? Oh, I've got to admit, when I was reflecting, I was rereading some of the chapters last night, actually, and it was the management. And it kind of ties in really nicely in a way in in what you've just commented on, because I remember particularly on the ICU or on the wards, respiratory wards, all we had was supportive therapy and proning. The heads of the patients, we were discussing best ventilation strategies on the ICU We were talking about how do we manage the microthrombi? Do we use four-dose anticoagulation? Do we not? And then it was the preprints, actually. Uh, You know, we were like, oh, my gosh, dexamethasone. And then we had remdesivir and then the IL-6 inhibitors. And now when we're doing our COVID MDTs, we're considering neutralizing monoclonal antibodies and the new, oh, it's not that new, but the um, other uh, antiretroviral, I can never pronounce particularly well. I think it's... Paxlovid, is it Pax? Oh, say it for me, someone, please. <laughs> Our <laughs> but, listeners are all saying it loudly. You can hear them if you're careful. <laughs> but it, it's just phenomenal. And all of that has been, I think, because we've just been able to work together. So many of the processes that have held us back, that have taken years for this amount of research to come to the forefront, is uh, they've just those barriers have crumbled. But I have to say, at the beginning of the pandemic, the amount of information that was available was overwhelming. And some of that information, I always did wonder, was it reviewed particularly well? Was it? But I don't know. Did you both feel the same as well? Yeah, especially when I was sitting on that EAG group, you know, that we were inundated with uh, documents to read. And some people were in the background were doing a lot of, you know, triaging as well, but still overwhelming amount of data and, you know, some questionable design of studies. But, you know, at the end, I think there was this frenzy in a way. People just wanted to move on, know more, you know, save lives. And I think it's probably reflected a bit of that. And yet, so much sharing of data, easy access. If you think of all the genetic studies of on the virus itself, how quickly people could would sequence, share the sequence, bring in sequencing in their own countries. I mean, you know, that was actually amazing. So yes, you could question the quality, but I think overall, people have an ethics of research and I think overall it did work. I don't know, that, that's my view. What do you think, John? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there were some high profile failures of peer review. We could think about Surgeon Sphere and the, and the studies in relation to that. But uh, in general, I, I think that the respiratory community in a multi-professional sense, respiratory researchers can be actually really proud of what they did. We together stood up and delivered care and research in some of the most difficult circumstances. And that doesn't matter if you're on the front line or 
I don't know, perhaps you, you were shielding, you were doing clinical work that wasn't in the front. It, it doesn't matter, but the, the community stood up together. And I, I think we should be really, really proud of what people have done at the same time as dealing with all the impact in their personal lives, which has affected every single one of us in a different way. That's that's an amazing thing to have been a part of, I think. Absolutely. And I think that that's so true. All those who weren't necessarily on the front line, but felt, oh, what can I do? What can I do? Yeah. We had people offering to call relatives on the ICU, supporting our juniors as well, clinicians that are working. It was phenomenal. And obviously, those people whose research returned upside down because they were called back to help support people. And I think there are a lot of positives that have been learned from the pandemic in terms of a personal negative that I've realised I will never be, it was homeschooling. Um, <laughs> can, can we think of any other positives apart from the collaboration, things that we hope never go away? So I'm a COPologist at heart. Two reflections on that. One has been an accelerated shift to remote care delivery, which sometimes is the right thing to do. And so going forward, maintaining that hybrid model so that some patients can have remote care when it suits them, I think that's a really positive thing. The other thing in relation to COPD is that the COVID pandemic has resulted in a 50% reduction in hospitalized COPD exacerbations. That's a, a greater reduction, I might add, than the last 30 years of clinical development has achieved in any other way. And of course, people with COPD are not going to shield for the rest of their lives. Of course, they're not. But they may be more willing to accept some hand hygiene measures, some face covering measures. So that's another positive. And the third positive is perhaps a bit less tangible. But, you know, just perhaps, just perhaps respiratory health and the skills of respiratory health care professionals and scientists are on the agenda like they never have been before. Everything has been difficult, really difficult. But let's try and draw some positives out of it, too, I think. Already, where were you? What, can you see some light as well? To me, it was more at the societal level. I think it brought medicine and research into the community, into the lay population who really understood, I think, a bit better what we do, what you know, clinical trials mean. I think it has opened up eyes to people as to how we do medicine. And I think in a way, there was a bit too much of everybody's a scientist now, everybody knows about COVID, but because there was so much data available for the lay people. But on the other hand, I think it gave a better understanding to the, even the politicians probably, you know, how we work, the importance of collaboration, the importance of sharing technologies and platform. I think to me, that was a big change in society. Absolutely. And I think two years on now, We've obviously gained so much knowledge. And I suppose clinically, IOD patients, very similar to, to COPD, we, we've fortunately not seen as many patients hospitalized as we thought. But seeing people or reviewing patients who've developed COVID, whether it be associated with VTE events or persistent breathlessness, I think there has been perhaps the initial predictions were a third of patients, I think, would have evidence, some evidence, and correct me here, Aurelie, if I'm wrong, of interstitial lung disease. Certainly in our local area, we, we've not seen that, not as high a rate of that. But those patients who are affected with IOD, they are quite symptomatic with the symptoms of breathlessness. And sometimes 
you do actually wonder if COVID has, or the infection has actually precipitated an interstitial lung disease. So it was pre-existing essentially, and, and COVID isn't any types of infections potentially has precipitated it. So I think the collaboration links that we've developed are going to be really important for, for managing our survivors of COVID-19. Would you agree, Aurelie? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And I think we need to get maybe get the radiologist on board and and see how they, what do they mean by, you know, post-COVID sequelae on imaging. We probably need a few more autopsy studies as well to see in those patients. I don't think we're going to do biopsies on those, but maybe try to get a better understanding of what's happening later. So I think we still have lessons to learn from chronic COVID or chronic interstitial change and uh, decide are there, as you say, a revealed presentation of ILD or something else in the background. I think it's still a bit unclear from what I gather from the MDT discussions and so on. And, and that for me is perhaps something where as a research community, we haven't been as proactive. So I, I'm talking about long COVID in a, in a holistic sense, not specifically the ILD now. What is very clear is that there are a large number of people who've had COVID infection who've been left with a large number of really disabling symptoms. And the efforts to find interventions to help them has perhaps not been as coordinated as it was for acute COVID. You know, that there's a big need there. So as many people are, I'm part of big studies, one in the UK run by Chris Breitling and his team in Leicester called FOSP, looking at post-hospital patients. But actually, these are problems for people who had community COVID as well. And looking at phenotypes and measuring the impact and assessing the impact is one thing, but how do we then translate that into interventions for long COVID. We're just at the start of that kind of journey, I think. And that's mm-hmm. that's going to be a task for respiratory healthcare clinicians and scientists going forwards. And we need to make sure that there's funding for those types of studies now, that the funding doesn't stop just because it's a more chronic disease. You know, I think it's very important. Yeah. And also not at the expense of funding for the other important respiratory diseases, of which I'm going to say COPD is one. I agree. I agree. And we've we've touched there on the impact on society, haven't we, in terms of particularly not those patients in the community have been forgotten, but those patients with long COVID and the impact on society. We certainly had a chapter or have a chapter on that in the monograph. Would either of you like to comment on that chapter at all? Well, you know, there's a lot to say about societal impact and there, you know, there's a lot, long list of societal impact. To me, the big ones would be children and school closure and less access to education. I think that's a, a first one. And we probably need to improve that if there's another pandemic sometimes to uh, make sure we keep education going. I think there's a lot of mental health issue. We need to continue continue keeping an eye on that, women's health and domestic abuse, domestic violence. But I think that's all linked to lockdown and maybe we should move away from lockdowns. Maybe that's the lesson and see how we can live with a virus without having to lock down a society. So I think everybody was on the learning curve. It's easy now to comment and maybe criticize, but there's definite societal impact. And again, I think we need to make sure there are studies to evaluate this and treat what's treatable or manage what's manageable, I think. And we've got the economic impacts too. I mean, that's, you know, we're going to be paying for this for a long, 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 long time. And where are the trade-offs in relation to that? What is not funded because we're thinking about how we pay for the things that we funded during COVID. And so there are some, our politicians have some really big decisions to make. And, you know, I guess uh, I still count myself as a European looking around Europe, very big differences about how that's been handled. And I think that's an interesting thing, right? So different 
jurisdictions have taken very different approaches. And I suppose with that, we think about the future of COVID-19. Both of you have mentioned earlier on in the podcast how the patients presenting now to the hospital are different, particularly those who are vaccinated. We mentioned kind of the economic and the impact to society or the economic implications, I should say. But what do you think the future holds for us with regards to COVID-19? What are your thoughts? I mean, I guess that's the other big success is, is the vaccine rollout. And so we're, we're certainly seeing a different population admitted to hospital now. And we're seeing, I think, in the UK, you know, we're, we're recording this in the second half of February 2022. We're seeing very much a transition to endemicity at the moment. Life is, it feels like, getting back towards normal-ish. There's a lot of recovery to do within health services. And, you know, that's a, that's a huge challenge as well. But in terms of what the world looks like outside my window today, it doesn't look that much different from, from, from when it did before. UK is in a particular place different parts of the world in very, very different places, depending on vaccine availability, all all of those things. So it's going to be a phase of global transition, I think, at, at different speeds and different paces. And I would say as well, we need to watch, you know, what's coming up in the winter. Are we going to be faced with a new wave? Is it going to come with the flu? Do we need to vaccinate a certain type of population? And I think there's a lot to learn there as to, you know, we're coming into spring and summer, we'll probably be fine. And then what happens in next October, November? So I think there's still a lot of uncertainties, but at least we have the tools between the vaccines and the hand washing and the face covering and so on. And maybe we should try to copy the people in Asia and wear more masks, more regularly crowded spaces. I don't know. I think public health need to maybe improve their education. And I think we probably need to educate the society in the long run and not just stop now because we think it's back to normal. So Sheila, no one's listening to this. Uh, it's not being recorded. So uh, obviously no one's going to hold you to the predictions I'm just about to ask you to make. So ha- having read the monograph, what are your predictions for the future? And uh, nobody who's going to hold you to them, obviously. Gosh, OK. So I think this is a really simplistic term, thinking from a very low level, but planning of clinicians, for example, for new people coming in in August. And I think of COVID as something that is going to be here to stay with surges in the winter. And with that comes staff sickness and it's how to future plan for that. And also from looking at the patients that we care for, how to protect those patients as best we can. So I think it is something we all will learn to live with. And we have learned so much already but it's, I think you're absolutely right, Aurelie, it's about not letting our guard down too early and about perhaps using methods that have been employed in other countries here. Yeah, those are my thoughts, I suppose. Thank you again, Aurelie and John, for taking the time to be with us today and for inviting me to be part of this monograph. We would also like to extend our huge gratitude to the chapter authors who made this monograph possible as well as the reviewers who often go unnoticed. And finally, to the entire ERS editorial board. We would encourage the respiratory community to read this edition as it truly is a testament to the huge amount of knowledge that has been gained on a novel disease in such a short period of time. It is perhaps a reflection also of how much we can achieve when we work as one. I'm afraid this brings us to the end of the podcast and 
I hope the listeners enjoy this podcast and edition of The Monograph as much as I have. Thank you.